Chapter 9 Three Things I Wish I'd Known Sometimes I lie awake at night and ask, Where have I gone wrong? Then a voice says to me, This is going to take more than one night. Charles M. Schultz Avoiding Pitfalls Along the Road to Rest I've been a pastor for nearly two decades now, and throughout this time I've been the product of on-the-job training. Maybe every job is this way. Do you know any good doctors or lawyers or teachers or artists who quit learning years ago? I don't either. Nor do I know any good pastors who aren't continually refining their craft. So, while I'm not opposed to having to learn as I go, having to fight to stay a half-step ahead of the congregation I've been tasked with leading, having to study and read and restudy and reread, so that I can provide something worthwhile come Sunday morning, there are a handful of things I wish somebody had told me before I got started, things I didn't have to learn the hard way. Things like this. No matter how hard I try, I'll always be tempted to measure my success by my church's attendance numbers. Or, the best thing I can do for my congregation is to quit comparing myself to other pastors and simply strive to be genuinely me. Or, because it takes a long time to become old friends, I ought to nurture and cherish the old friendships I have. Or, I will only be given as much spiritual authority as the amount of spiritual authority I'm willing to submit to. Or, my brain will always, always feel like scrambled eggs on Sunday afternoon and again all day Monday. I will do well to hold all decisions until Tuesday. Or, I will never regret spending time with my family. Or, while it's true that sheep bites can't kill me, the general congregational gnawing every pastor is made to withstand will make life absolutely miserable a few very long days each year. Granted, when you learn the hard way, the lessons get ingrained in you, like the brand on cattle's behinds. But I doubt any cow would describe that process as fun. No, personally, I'd recommend the easy way out. I'm more stubborn than the average guy, so in reality people probably did tell me the things I needed to know all those years ago. Most likely I just didn't have ears to hear. My spirit probably revolted, thinking, I'll figure it out on my own, thank you very much. Only I doubt I actually said thanks. Perhaps you're the same way. If you have a bit of driver in your personality, a smidge of type A behavior in how you roll, then you too will insist on learning the hard way. You will be one of the growing group of people who have learned the hard way horror stories to tell, about odorless gas leaks, about Rottweilers and children, about weekend warriors and ACL surgery, and about nearly killing yourself before you learned to appreciate rest. If, however, you are a less stubborn person, or even a stubborn one who happens to be in a teachable mood, then this chapter is for you. The three things I wish I'd known long ago, but didn't, might help you avoid a pitfall or two along the path to living a rhythmic life. Number 1. Rest is Opposed The first rhythmic life lesson I learned the hard way is this. Our rest is opposed. During the early days of my marriage, when I was running too fast and pushing too hard, I found it incredibly difficult to come down. I feared rest. 
I feared the loneliness and boredom I knew rest would usher in, and so I kept the pedal to the metal, upping my RPMs higher and higher, while praying each and every moment that I'd somehow avoid a crash. But the reality is that we always have to come down. We can't stay up forever, and because I refused to learn how to slow myself in a healthy manner, I was forced to walk an unhealthy path, a path paved with Internet porn. From a place of deep humility, I have shared with my congregation how challenging it was to untangle myself from the grip of pornography across the span of several years in my twenties. But by God's grace, I did get free. For quite a while, I looked back on that stretch of sinfulness with disbelief. How could I stoop to that level? I was in ministry. I was supposedly living for God. I adored and admired my wife, and yet still, I'd find myself sitting in front of a computer screen long after Pam had gone to bed, staring at stuff I had no business staring at, regretting the minutes, even as they tick by. Things make more sense to me now. When you and I don't say yes to God's form of rest, we will say yes to a fraudulent form of rest, cooked up by the enemy of our souls. We will say yes to porn or to booze or to drugs or to gambling or to idle chatter or to extravagant spending, all in the name of unwinding. This is what we'll declare, anyway, when pressed to justify our sinful ways. It's all proof that real rest is opposed, that rest without God is not rest at all. My friend John Eldridge likes to say, Caring for your heart is the first blow against the enemy's schemes. And he's absolutely right. Satan hates it when we truly come down in a good and godly way, because that's when spiritual transformation happens. That's when soulish growth takes place. That's when we become like God. I've long been fascinated with the American Civil War, and recently caught a PBS documentary on the Battle of Gettysburg, aired in conjunction with the 150th anniversary of the campaign. Gettysburg happened almost exactly at the halfway point of the Four-Year War, and is considered by many historians to be the turning point for Union forces, who would defeat the Confederacy in the end. As I watched the reenactment of the specific scenes that made up this battle, Robert E. Lee's high-flying spirits as he marched his troops into Pennsylvania, both sides' strategic use of ridges, town streets, and hills to sneak up on and take down opposition soldiers, the Union's ability to hold their lines despite suffering a ridiculous number of casualties, Meade's defeat of southern attacks, which would end Lee's invasion of the North. I was intrigued not only by the sweeping maneuvering, but also by the utter minutiae involved. So many microscopic actions, reactions, decisions, determinations, and declarations. So many tiny things that added up to something huge in the end something that looked a lot like victory. The Confederates had every opportunity to win the war there at Gettysburg, but they did not. For the Union Army, tending to the minor details meant a major win in the grand scheme of things, which leads me to my point. When we recognize that real rest is opposed, that the enemy absolutely hates it when we unwind in a godly way, we realize that we too are at war. It's a war, and the spoils are our souls, and yet tiny disciplines can yield the biggest of wins. 
I'm reminded I'm at war when my family finally sits down for dinner, to pray, to eat, to relax, and someone's phone rings. Or when I get all settled on the back deck for half an hour of solitude with God, and my kids choose then to be chatty. Or when I set aside a day for hiking and communing with God, and a freak snowstorm blows into town. Or when I block off a weekend on the calendar to stay home without any to-dos and unwind from a harried pace and out-of-state friends decide to come to Colorado for a visit. Or when I actually plan a whole week of vacation and I catch a vicious flu bug the morning of day one. All these things have happened to me, and they'll happen again and again. Why? Because we're at war, and the enemy hates to lose. I begin to win the war, battle by battle, incident by incident, one seemingly innocuous campaign after another, when I silence the phone and keep my family's dinnertime conversation afloat, when I embrace my kids there on the back deck, tend to their immediate needs, and then tell them I'll be with them in twenty minutes or so, when instead of cursing that freak snowstorm, I watch with awe as it blows through. When I carve out an hour on day two of my house guest's visit to pull away, to retreat alone with God, and when I laugh in the face of vacation-time illness, instead of allowing it to derail my entire week. Remember the scene we looked at in an earlier chapter, when Jesus told the wind and the waves to be still? This was actually the second time Jesus had withdrawn for a little solitude, but was quickly summoned back to his disciples to save the day. Both times natural storms interrupted his rest. This is the way it always goes, even for Jesus Christ. Something always interrupts our rest, because real rest is always opposed. The old Scotsman, Sir James Matthew Barry, the one who created Peter Pan, once quipped in his charming Anglo-Saxon style, Has it ever struck you that the trouts bite best on the Sabbath? God's critters tempting decent men. I'm willing to concede the point that Satan isn't behind every sidetracking scheme. Sometimes maybe it really is just a mischievous fish. Either way, I've learned that unless I commit myself to minding my mind, I defer to the distraction every time. A few years ago, I experienced a dramatic case of letting distraction rule my days. I was going through a rough patch relationally with another pastor, and over the course of several months, I noticed that whatever free time I had, in the early morning, between meetings, during my drive home, I'd use up by imagining conversations with this person. I'd replay in my mind the last exchange we'd had, and then I'd play out what I wanted to say next, as well as how I thought he'd respond. In his book Social Intelligence, author Daniel Goleman, who also wrote the bestseller Emotional Intelligence, said that rehashing our social lives may rate as the brain's favorite downtime activity, which tells me I'm far from alone in this regard. We fondle our social relationships, turning them over again and again in our minds. We revisit memories, we plot future exchanges, we wish for do-overs where we come across as witty and wise. And while there is nothing inherently wrong with this practice, it sure does siphon unassigned time. During the specific occurrence I mentioned, my motivations were actually pretty pure. I wasn't intending to waste time. I was hoping to redeem a relationship. 
but the fact of the matter was that I was using all my energy having imaginary conversations with a man rather than investing it more prudently by having actual conversations with God. One morning in my office, when I had headed over to my credenza for a fresh cup of coffee, I sensed God saying, You know, you're giving a lot of mental space to this, even though the conversations you're envisioning are never going to transpire. In response, I said, You're right. Admittedly, it was a brief exchange. God was right, and I knew it. I needed to start minding my mind. Later, I talked to the entire staff about what had happened, explaining that spinning our wheels over virtual conversations only serves to stir us up, while bringing our challenges to God calms us down and puts our anxious thoughts to rest. I didn't mandate anything to our staff that day, and I didn't have to. Lectures, diatribes, and strict enforcement of rules pale in comparison to the power of sheer truth. To the issue of minding our minds, I once heard a story of a monk who, in the course of everyday life, periodically rang what's called a mindfulness bell. People nearby who heard the bell would stop what they were doing and take three silent, mindful breaths. Then they would continue their work, awakened ever so slightly by the simple act of pausing, of breathing, of practicing mindfulness. I love this idea, and it's more practical than we may first think. I vote for ringing a mindfulness bell throughout our days, whether we have an actual bell or not. Maybe the bell is the instant your feet hit the floor in the morning. Or maybe it's each time you slip behind the wheel of your car. Maybe you set a bell chime as your ringtone, and thus it sounds each time you receive a call. The bell could be sitting down to a meal or kissing your spouse at the end of the day and every time you stop to pray. With a little creative thought, you and I can come up with some reminder to focus our thoughts, to mind our minds, to choose to rest in God. The great Vince Lombardi once said, Winning is a habit, an idea that transcends the world of sports. We practice taking every thought captive because minor habits really do wind up equaling major wins in the end. Number 2. Ruthlessness is required. A second lesson I wish I hadn't had to learn the hard way is that when it comes to rest, ruthlessness is required. Living rhythmically may sound like a breezy proposition, but to execute it well, we have to stand our ground. About 18 months ago, I called together the most senior leaders of New Life Church. These are the men and women who report directly to me the ones who oversee every ministry within our church. It's a great group of people, visionary minds, expansive hearts, and hands ever ready to serve. But due to a string of crises and personnel changes, not to mention the nation's economic downturn that affected every church across this land, our shared working relationship had fallen off track. As a leader, I'm a big fan of delegation, of trusting the team, of giving away all the control I don't actually need, all things my senior staff is well aware of. But situations beyond our control had forced us to up the ante on our communications for more than three years. I asked to be part of decisions I normally wouldn't need to weigh in on because our circumstances demanded that I did. A founding pastor scandal a fatal shooting on your campus, and a fast and furious financial downturn can do that to a group. But then that three-year period came to a close, and the stress level let up a bit. 
This would have been terrific news, except that I completely missed the cue that we had clawed our way out of the woods, and so my senior staff kept bringing me what I now instinctively believed were junior-level questions, and my frustration level only went up. Unwittingly, I'd neglected to inform them that we had shifted from crisis mode to normal everyday mode, and all of us were suffering mightily as a result. They were trying to include me in their minutia, and I was expending precious energy fending off their incessant requests. You'll recall that at various points throughout my life, I had a huge need to be needed, which was fed by work associates' never-ending string of demands. If someone was needed to teach a class, my hand shot up in the air. If someone was needed to drive the bus, I was ready to roll. If someone was needed to launch the ministry, I was the guy to tap. If someone was needed to lead the charge, I was there, fist raised in the air. So it was more than a little gratifying to realize I'd matured enough in my desire for rest that I would turn down all these flattering requests, for my input, for my wisdom, for my direction and counsel and advice. Brady, what should we do about filling this position? Brady, how would you handle this conflict? Brady, what are your thoughts on approving this vacation? Brady, how should we proceed? They were the woodpeckers, and I was the tree. A guy could die from being needed this much. I called the meeting for the purpose of informing them that if they preferred a pastor who was alive, then they would resume handling their own affairs. To which they said, Um, all due respect, Pastor Brady, but you created this madness you now despise. They were right, and all of us knew it. We had the discussion about how we'd come through the various crises and now could resume normal operations, but not before applauding Pastor Brady for not needing to be needed anymore. Not every day, anyway. There are three things a pastor has to do well. Lead, shepherd, and communicate. And I know pastors who love to do all three in equal measure. They can oversee meetings, prep for sermons, and speak until they're blue in the face and they are delighted the entire time. I am not one of those pastors. I don't love these things. I like these things and I am somewhat good at these things, but love them? Not so much. At least not in an infinite way. Eventually, I become bored with meetings, weary with studying, and annoyed with hearing my own voice. As a result, I employ all sorts of systemic gymnastics in order to thrive week after week. I delegate meeting authority. I meet with a diverse team for sermon prep. Regarding all manner of goings-on around new life, I opt out as often as I opt in. I do these things to stay sane. I do these things so that sheer chaos doesn't have its evil way in my life. This is a godly way to lead, by the way. You can see for yourself by reading Exodus chapter 18. Briefly, Moses had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, a process that involved escaping Pharaoh's clutches, miraculously crossing the Red Sea, worrying over food and water, encountering and defeating the Amalekite army, and frequently wrestling with whether they would choose to trust God. With the drama and near-death experiences behind them, they were able to set up shop near the mountain of God and establish some semblance of normal life. Moses' father-in-law, a man named Jethro, got wind of this wild turn of events and decided to pay Moses a visit to see how things were going. 
Upon Jephro's arrival, he and Moses exchanged hugs and kisses, and then swapped stories of God's faithfulness over a meal. The next day it was business as usual, as Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. Verse 13. Jethro stood back and watched as his son-in-law stayed in that chair from morning until night, deliberating disputes among the people he led. And then he had to speak up. What are you doing? he asked Moses. And Moses responded, This is my job. I am their judge. And he was telling the truth. The Israelites would bring every quarrel among them to Moses for resolution, because Moses was the guy in charge. He was the only one who knew the decrees and instructions God wanted enforced. And so they would have an argument. And then they'd come to Moses to explain their argument, and then Moses would tell them, biblically, what to do. It would have been a fine plan, except that Moses was a man, a mortal man, a man who wasn't Superman. He needed rest and relief as much as the next guy, and this pace eventually wore him out. The work is too heavy for you, Jethro told him. You cannot handle it alone. Verse 18. This gets back to the can versus should argument, doesn't it? Perhaps Moses could have done the work, but should he have? Of course, the answer is no. And so Jethro devised a plan. Teach them, the people, his decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave, Jethro said. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Verses 20 through 23. In other words, delegate, delegate, delegate. And this is exactly what Moses chose to do. In a momentary flash of brilliance, he chose to be ruthless about getting some rest. In hindsight, I recognize that living by healthy rhythms requires a ruthlessness many people aren't willing to let play out. We're worried about what others will think. We're afraid we'll come across as unfeeling and cold. We're concerned that if we no longer need to be needed, someday we really won't be needed at all. But really, these fears don't prove warranted in the end. In reality, when we are ruthless about protecting our rest, we free up ourselves to be healthy and free up those around us to live rhythmically too. You probably remember this country's blue laws, which were most strictly enforced up until the mid-1980s. When I was a kid, on any given Sunday, it was illegal in most states in the Union to engage in commerce of any kind. You couldn't buy a pair of shoes to walk to the store. You couldn't buy a package of bacon once you got there, and you couldn't buy a pan to fry it in. Everything was closed. In many states still today, if it's Sunday, you'll be hard-pressed to buy a car from a car dealership because blue laws in that industry are still in effect. In our city of Colorado Springs, one car dealership in particular imposes a blue law of its own. It's open during the week only from 9 in the morning until 6 at night despite most of its target market being unavailable to shop for new cars during those particular hours. One of its managers is a new lifer, and he explained to me that the owner of the dealership said, it's more important to me that our staff is home with their families each evening than if we sell an extra car or two. Workaholics will shake their heads at this logic, 
but I wonder if God smiles. Fail to plan and plan to fail and all that. He prefers our plans to center on Him. There is also a local home builder that, like national chains Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, chooses to remain closed on Sundays. They run radio ads throughout Southern Colorado explaining that the reason they choose not to be open on arguably the most popular home purchasing day of the week is that they view it as a non-negotiable top priority to let their staff worship with their families and rest. Society tends to mock these people, but in fact they're living by the rhythmic code. As the old cliché goes, burning the candle at both ends proves only that you're not very bright. As we discussed in the last chapter, the last thing I want to suggest is that legalism will do us any favors. It won't. But what these companies have learned is what I myself am learning. Ruthlessness paves the road to reliable rest. Number 3. The Reward is the Presence of God There's a third lesson I've learned along the way, which is that the reward I'm constantly seeking is the persistent presence of God. We looked at an extended passage from Matthew 6 a couple of chapters ago that is worth revisiting now. There, Jesus tells His disciples that when they give to the poor, or when they pray, or when they fast, they should do these things not to be seen by other people, but only to be seen by God. He says that if those who love God announce their giving with trumpets, or shout their prayers from the street corners, or look somber while fasting, then they have received their reward in full. Verses 2, 5, and 16. Their reward, in other words, is the fleeting praise of other people. What he suggests is doing all these things in secret, thereby trusting God to dole out the rewards. See Matthew 6, verses 4, 6, and 18. But what does all this have to do with rest? I think of the words of Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, verse 8. And I wonder if Jesus' exhortations in Matthew 6 were intended to form an exhaustive list, or whether, I happen to think this is the case, they were simply examples of righteous acts. I wonder if what Jesus was really saying was, whenever you practice any discipline of obscurity, let my Father's praise be enough. I think I expected a marching band to materialize after I started taking rest seriously. Look at me, everyone. Look how seriously I'm taking God's injunction to rest. I'm a Sabbath keeper, folks, plain and simple, holy and righteous and good. I never would have admitted it publicly, but privately I think I hoped for some shiny angel to appear, to deliver the divine prize package I'd so dutifully earned. The shiny angel never showed up. I was talking with a woman I've known for some time who lost her first husband to cancer and whose second husband was recently diagnosed with the same disease. Multiplying the stress in her life is the fact that her older son was arrested for embezzlement and is serving jail time. Her younger son is being treated for alcoholism. Her granddaughter just lost her newborn baby to SIDS and the mounting expenses from all these situations leave her financially strained every month. She's been thinking about this potholed path she's been walking for some time now and wanted to bounce her reflections off me. With earnest eyes, she looked at me and said, Pastor Brady, I have served God and tithed to His church all my life. Can I ask you a simple question? Where is my reward? Her question punched me in the gut. 
This was no simple issue she'd raised. After such faithfulness on her part, why wouldn't God do this? I wrapped an arm of comfort around her shoulders and let the question sit unaddressed for the moment. She wasn't really looking for answers right then. She was looking for someone who cared. I thought of how many times I've stood in her shoes, and the memories came flooding back. I watched my mom and dad live by the work-hard code for decades, and yet still struggle to make ends meet. I myself was the embodiment of diligence, and was still passed over for promotions I deserved. My devoted wife wanted desperately to become pregnant for years, but instead found her womb empty month after month. You and I both have been there, haven't we? In that place of having shown up to do what's ours to do, and feeling frustrated that God never came. The burdens never lifted, the trials never abated, the troubles never vacationed, the blessings never arrived. I squared my shoulders to the dear woman, and with gentleness said, Let's reframe things for a moment, okay? When you leave here, you're headed out to the parking lot where a car that you own is waiting for you, right? She nodded as I went on. And you're going to drive that car home to a house you also own, a house that has lockable doors and reliable heat. And then you'll fix dinner, correct? Which will mean that, just as is the case every other day of your life, you've eaten three square meals in one day. She exhaled a little, having sorted out where I was going with all of this. Top five percent, I said to her. You're in the top five percent of all the people in the world. If you want to make this about material stuff, then remember, you're in far better shape than the other ninety-five percent. And yet this wasn't about material stuff. She knew it, and so did I. What it really was about was the stuff of assurance, of knowing that God hadn't lost her file. And the only way she was going to find her footing here was to slow down, look up, and seek peace. It is in our rest that we regain awareness of God, that we're reminded His nearness is our coveted reward. When Dallas Willard died in 2013, heaven gained a real champion of the faith. Considered by most people to be an expert on spiritual formation, he wrote often and well on the topic of how we become more like Christ, how we get formed into the newness of life we're promised when we go God's way instead of our own. See Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. Here is a great example of his writing from The Spirit of the Discipline. Human life cannot flourish as God intended it to in a divinely inspired and upheld corporate rule over this grand globe if we see ourselves as on our own, and especially if we struggle to preserve ourselves that way. When we are in isolation from God and not in the proper social bonds with others, we cannot rule the earth for good. The idea is simply absurd. The key to flourishing, I think Willard would have agreed, is not doing away with our problems, but rather the drawing near to God. I've certainly found this to be true. You get alone with God and you realize that what you've magnified to monster status, God quickly minimizes to the size of a mouse. He says, look, I know you're tangled up in knots over this set of circumstances, but you've got to believe me when I tell you it's okay. Keep coming to me and I'll show you the way out. It's a path I have already lovingly paved. Granted, I'm not saying we'll always like the path. What I'm saying is, it's where we'll find peace. This is what the woman needed. Her big problems upheld by God's even bigger hands. 
It's what we all need, in fact. We all need to be reminded that God is near to us and that He passionately and protectively cares. We observe the sacrament of communion most every weekend at New Life Church. It hasn't always been this way, but for the past year or so, we have made it a priority to remind ourselves of God's presence and power in this way every time we gather to worship. I've noticed something during the past 12 months. It's hard to hustle through the wine and the bread. It's nearly impossible to still the soul when the body is still rushing around. And that's a very good thing. We need to stop. We need to savor. We need to consider His presence enough. In The Practice of the Presence of God, 17th century monk Brother Lawrence wrote of the believer, If sometimes he is a little too much absent from that divine presence, God presently makes himself to be felt in his soul to recall him, which often happens when he is most engaged in his outward business. He answers with exact fidelity to these inward drawings, either by an elevation of his heart toward God, or by a meek and fond regard to him, or by such words as love forms upon these occasions, as, for instance, My God, here I am all devoted to thee. Lord, make me according to thy heart. In other words, God's presence is always there for the taking. This is why we practice communion with regularity, to tell God once again that we wish to be inwardly drawn to Him, that we understand our reward is Him. Several weeks ago, following communion, I prayed a prayer written by Martin Lloyd-Jones to our congregation. Throughout the whole of this day, everything I do and say and attempt and think and imagine is going to be done under the eye of God. He is going to be with me. He sees everything. He knows everything. There is nothing I can do or attempt, but God is fully aware of it all. A prayer like this can petrify us. Yikes! His eye is always on me. Or we can be uplifted by it. Day by day, I'm learning to choose the uplift. I'm learning to see His presence as my reward. Breaking Busy Challenge number one, name your three. As you listen to this chapter, you may have thought about lessons you've learned about rest that you wish you would have known before. Go ahead and list them out. What are your top three takeaways about rhythmic living that had you known sooner could have saved you a boatload of pain and grief and spinning out of control days? Challenge number two, keep your tank full. Next, Write out your strategy for abiding by those lessons from this moment forward, for living with a tank that is full. For you, it may mean enlisting a friend who will tell you the truth if you start running on empty again. It may mean assigning a consistent prayer time with God each morning, so that you stay clear on priority number one. It may mean scheduling quarterly appointments with a counselor, so that you can stay true to who you say you want to be. It may mean signing off of social media for a while if the temptation to live distracted is simply too much to take. It may mean crafting something of a personal manifesto regarding breaking your addiction to busy and posting it on your bathroom mirror so that you see it each time you brush your teeth. Whatever will help you keep your commitment to living with a tank that is full, do that thing and do it now.